Tarcito, el primero de noviembre con su flor de cempasúchil y lo que le hace feliz. I'm Daniel Chacon and I'm Tim Hernandez. Welcome to Words on a Wire. That's right. We have a, uh, an exciting uh, Halloween slash Dia de los Muertos uh, conversation coming for you. Yeah, we're just going to talk about what Halloween means to us, what it doesn't mean to us, uh, the celebrations of the dead, uh, what the dead mean to us. But more importantly, this show is produced by our two MFA interns, uh, Ileana Pichardo Urrutia and Claudia Flores Ramirez. Yeah, both very uh, incredible students and writers, uh, of course, but, um, you know, they've, they've put together a They've curated a really interesting show for, for you all today. They've had some guests uh, telling some stories about uh, one of them is a guest from Venezuela who's going to be talking about a kind of a leyenda, a little legend uh, from, from that country. And then uh, there's also some folks who will be talking about a haunted hotel here in El Paso. Um, and just, you know, a lot of at that hotel. What's that? <laughs> is that right? Did you? Yeah, yeah. When I was looking for a place to do crack and it was scary, man. I was paranoid the whole night. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if it was the hotel that was haunted or your soul. But, I'm you know, sorry, that was a bad joke. <laughs> uh, that's all right, man. You know, we're used to your bad jokes, Daniel. <laughs> no, but it's going to be an exciting show, uh, you know, a lot of guests. And Daniel and I are pretty much going to be, they've, they've counted on us. They relied on us to be the thread that holds that together. So here we are. Let me just throw out some of the names. All of them are MFA candidates in our bilingual MFA in creative writing right here at UTEP. It is Cecil Collins, Natasha Rangel, and our two producers, Claudia Flores and Ileana Pichardo. And she's also going to be... Uh, uh, was assisted or, or actually she did all the production and sound editing with uh, Facundo Torrieri. So we'd like to thank all of them and uh, let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what Halloween means to us as writers. Wow, we're going to start there with Halloween. I guess it makes sense because Halloween comes first and then Dia de los Muertos is after. So, okay, we'll do it chronologically. Or, you know, we could also do just put them together as, as, as a manifestation of the same cultural need to somehow acknowledge that the dead walk among us or that the dead have passed on and we haven't forgotten them. Que viene, que viene, que va y que viene. 
Este programa es La Guapachosa, escrita e interpretada por Roxana Río. Soy Cecil Collins y a lo largo de la emisión de hoy les compartiré algunas canciones dedicadas al Día de Muertos y Halloween. You know what? That's a good idea because, like, for me personally, I'll be, I'll just be honest, man. You know, um, growing up, I wasn't familiar with Dia de los Muertos. I didn't know Neither. that it even was a thing. And, you know, we were Chicanos growing up in Fresno, man. They didn't tell us this stuff until, you know, until later. I mean, yeah, Fresno, Dia de los Muertos was every day. People walked around like zombies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. But anyway, um, but Halloween was, you know, that was the thing. That was the only thing. And uh, as far as it being a kid, that was the only thing I know that I looked forward to, my cousins looked forward to. It wasn't until later I learned that Dia de los Muertos was a thing, you know, once I got into college. And then, like, slowly, I want to say over the last... Mm. I don't know, 20 years for me, and at least in my circle, uh, it felt like they did start to become one, you know, all sort of glommed together. Halloween and the Los Muertos started to become one. Was that well, you know, you know what it is? I think that, you know, we grew up in the Central Valley. You know, you grew up, I think, in Tulare. Visalia. Oh, uh, Visalia. And I grew up in Fresno. We, and they're very close. And, you know, we pretty much share the same culture. Um, but it was incredibly uh racist and culturally biased when I grew up mm -hmm. and uh we were taught not to speak Spanish we were taught to deny our culture and so of course we were going to learn those traditions in school and if our parents um you know didn't teach us certain traditions and maybe they didn't know because they too were growing up in an, an alienated racist uh, culturally biased system then we had no way of knowing about it but since we began to become a larger community I think, um, you know, um, yeah. we, uh, we have been exposed to our antepasados and what they used to do and, and their practices, but not yeah. through the schools initially, although now it's embraced by the schools. Right. I mean, I, I guess that's what I mean is that for us, I know that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't in any kind of popular radar. You know what I mean? We weren't familiar. That wasn't in schools. It wasn't celebrated. I think, you know, I think my family in their own way, though, they did honor the dead, you know, their antepasados, the ancestors. I know that we often always had photographs of, right. you know, of our, my grandmother and grandfathers who were past. And then my mother would always light candles and leave them there. So there were these elements, you know, we never necessarily left offerings, you know, like uh, little cookies or you know, like the, my dad, my grandpa's favorite beer. That was never happening. You know? <laughs> that didn't come until later that, oh, you can leave an offering. But But I love that it's kind of, you know, now it's sort of a much more ex widely accepted, uh, you know, arrangement of holidays or, you know. Right, yeah. right. And, you know, I was thinking this morning as I was, you know, preparing for the show and what we're, you know, what we're going to talk about. Um, I was thinking about how it seems that almost every culture has some manifestation of, of somehow honoring the dead. You know, it, it, you know, the Mexican culture has it, uh, uh, the Celtic culture has it, which may have actually even been partially responsible for the origins of Halloween. And then I found in, in, in Chinese culture, they have King Ming, uh, which is uh, the, um, uh, it's also called the uh, 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 tomb, tomb, uh, uh, tomb sweeping day. 
And families go to the graves, they bring candles, they bring food, they bring all kinds of stuff because they believe during this time, like in Day of the Dead, and even like the origins of Halloween, that somehow a portal is open into the other world, very Coco-like, <laughs> this yeah. portal where the dead can come back. And, um, you know, so I, I think I, I would probably guess, although I haven't done the research, uh, that almost every culture has something like this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, I think that that does kind of apply with, with the exception of obviously different nuances that are particular to regions and whatever their own traditions are. But I think that, that, yeah, I think that uh, every culture has its own sort of way to honor the dead and some of, and some of the ways that they do that, some of parts of that ritual or ceremony, um, you know, tend to be similar to one another, just wherever you're at on the planet. It doesn't matter where you're at on the planet, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing how that works. But you know what I think partially is responsible for that kind of, uh, you know, shared type of archetypal ways of honoring the dead is that ultimately when we honor the dead, what we're going is we're going very deeply into ourselves, into our own subconscious and our own fears and desires. Because I think ultimately all of us, all human beings, or at least the majority of human beings want to believe that they are eternal somehow. They are somehow souls. They are spirits. And that when our body dies, we're going to continue to live. And if we believe that, truly believe that, then we have to believe that those who have died before us, our parents, our grandparents, all of our antepasados are still there. And, and why we need this portal for them to come into our, you know, our lives is, is, is on one level an assurance that we are eternal, but also on another level, it's going into our own subconscious to deal with our own fears and our desires. What do we fear? We fear death. What do we desire? We desire approval. We desire you know, uh, to be part of something and being part of a family. We build an altar for them and we invite them back. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, um, and, you know, uh, we've talked about this. We've even touched on this before, you and I, in past shows, that this, this idea of, of death or this concept is something that as writers and as artists, I mean, as, as people in general, we, we deal with, we grapple with that. But as writers and artists, particularly myself anyway, um, I know that death has often informed <clears throat> my writing. Right. It's often, you know, whether, whether directly or indirectly, it's always kind of been there as a, one of the themes or at least one of the investigations I continue to explore in my stories, you know? Um, and it just so happens that in the last 11 years, I've find myself often at cemeteries. That's kind of, <laughs> you know, for real. I like, can, I mean, I'm just, I'm being very, you know, honest here. Like, I mean, I get I, it. I, I'm finding myself standing at cemeteries. I mean, you know, my book, Manana Means Heaven, I'm, I'm standing at B. Franco Cemetery. She just passed away. And like that same weekend, like two days later, I'm standing in another, like a, a block away from that in another cemetery, honoring the victims of a plane crash in 1948, like within one weekend. Right, I'm like, right. what, what's going on here? What's, maybe I'm closer to that portal that you're talking about than I yeah, <laughs> I think I think writers and artists in general, and those who, who, who work with language or imagery, I think that we, we uh, you know, we tend to have a closer relationship with death than, than, than others. Right, right. That's right, man. A los hombres que son fiesteros e infieles, se los lleva a la sayona. Yo tenía nueve años cuando mi abuela me dijo esa frase durante una reunión familiar mientras miraba a mis tíos que estaban bebiendo en un rincón. Entonces, 
me contó la historia de Casilda, una hermosa mujer de la época colonial que llamaba mucho la atención en el pueblo, en el llano venezolano. Casilda estaba casada con un hombre que era devoto a ella y tenía dos hijos, pero tenía un defecto. Era extremadamente celosa. Y en el pueblo había un hombre que era totalmente lo opuesto a ella, ¿no? Mientras ella representaba la belleza, representaba este ideal de, de mujer llamativa, vistosa, estaba este hombre, este otro hombre, que codiciaba a Casilda y solía ir a espiarla cuando iba a bañarse en el río. Un día, Casilda advirtió que el hombre la estaba mirando y lo confrontó. Y el hombre se negó, dijo que no que él no había ido a espiarla, sino a advertirle que su esposo la estaba engañando con su propia madre. Y Casilda, llena de cólera, se fue a su casa y la incendió. Incendió la casa con su esposo y con sus hijos dentro y luego fue a casa de su madre, tomó un machete y sin mediar palabra mató a la madre. Pero antes, antes, antes de morir, la madre le dijo que había sido acusada de manera injusta, que Casilda estaba equivocada y que por haberla matado iba a caerle el peor de los castigos, que así lo señalaba Dios. Y la maldijo, le dijo, salió nacerás por el resto de la eternidad. Y entonces Casilda se convirtió en un espectro que vaga por el llano venezolano cazando a los hombres que son fiesteros e infieles. Los atrae como una figura muy hermosa que los hombres persiguen y los va internando poco a poco en lo profundo del llano. Cuando el hombre ya está cerca, que está a punto de tocarla, ella se voltea y ya no es una mujer hermosa, sino un espectro horrible, una calavera increíblemente fea que lleva a estos hombres a la muerte. I had this student one time in an introduction to creative writing class who told me I don't like literary fiction. Uh, he wanted to write fantasy and all this other stuff. He says I don't like literary fiction because it's all about death. And I I was scandalized. What the heck are you talking about? The, but the more I become The older I become, the more experienced I become, I, I realize on a certain level that he's right. Because when we access fiction or, you know, when we go into a work of art and we rely on voices to take us there, sometimes those voices are going to be almost literally, if not literally, voices of the dead. Like we might be channeling a voice that we've read before. Maybe I read Julio Cortázar 10 years ago, and now that I'm writing, I find this rhythm that comes out that I don't recognize at the time as Julio Cortázar, or the voice of my grandmother, or the voice of the dead that we imagine. And so, yeah, on, on some level, I do think that writing, creative writing, fiction writing, poetry does uh, uh, encourage communication with the dead, however you define the dead. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, that makes me think like um, kind of going back to Halloween now, the, you know, we're gonna, if we're going to cross the Halloween Dia de los Muertos bridge all day long, <laughs> uh, going back to Halloween, I remember honestly having a kind of a little bit of um, 
like, I know a lot of kids would say, oh, you know, like, tell us a scary story. And like, you know, during Halloween, like they want their teachers to tell them a scary story, their parents or whatever. I, I honestly, I think I asked that one time when I was young and then I never asked that again. And I didn't want to hear it anymore after that. They <laughs> told me like the, one of the most scariest stories that haunted me, man, uh, as a child. And every time Halloween came around, the only part of it that I feared was hearing stories from my family. I didn't want to wow. hear stories family like, like, i wanted to wear a mask stories that they I wanted to wear my mask <laughs> and then just go get candy you know what i mean like that's it <laughs> oh do you remember any of those stories that really scared you when you were a kid oh oh man you know what i want to hear one i want to hear one and i'll tell you what okay i'm gonna tell you this is i mean now this is not kid stuff so you know if you're out there on the radio and you're <laughs> in the car right now you might want it no i'm just kidding it's not that. pull over you might want to change over. it to britney spears or you know something <laughs> exactly. like that this is not for the week of uh, heart man uh no so <clears throat> you know my parents are migrant farm workers and one of part of our circuit was always to travel to wyoming we went from central california up to wyoming my parents did a uh, sugar beet they worked on the sugar beets there and I was probably like about four or five years old as I was, as I was told this story. Um, and, you know, they'd bring me and my other younger cousins along and we'd all be there. And we would travel up to Wyoming and we'd stay in this, uh, well, it was a labor camp, but it was kind of made up of like trailer homes, you know, like mobile homes. And it was all, they were all placed in a big circle around a giant, you know, middle area. Oh, there's trouble right there with that circle. <laughs> the circle. It always, it always begins with a circle, right? And so... There was a circle, right? And so that we, and uh, my grandfather, anyways, so every night they'd go to sleep. Family, would, it would just be our family. They'd all go to sleep in their little, you know, respective trailer homes. And then um, in the middle of the night, they would hear a, a, like a baby crying, right? Yeah. And so they kept saying, well, none of us have babies anymore. Then like, who's crying? So they were asking each other, asking each other. You know, a day later, they realized that they don't know where the baby's come, cry is coming from. So my grandpa wakes up one night because he's trying to figure that out. Like, who the hell? Why is this? Where is this, why is this baby? Where's this coming from? So he goes out, like, I guess at night when everyone's asleep still. And he hears the crying coming from, like, behind his refrigerator. It's like in that area. So my grandfather goes and he's looking in the kitchen area there. And, you know, it's a trailer home. So he's kind of staring straight at it. And he's looking at it. And he doesn't, he's like, what? So he gets a little closer and gets a little closer. And then all of a sudden, like this light comes out from behind the refrigerator, right? And um, so my grandfather just like jumps back and, and he kind of goes, he just ignores it and runs off. The next night he starts to investigate again. And so he hears the baby crying and he investigates night after night until finally he just has the courage to screw it. He goes there and he pushes the fridge aside, you know, and he's kind of waiting. And then the light comes out. And it's this woman's face. It's like a woman. And she's got like a dog on a leash, but there's no dog. <laughs> Just a leash. Like, a I like those invisible leashes you used to get. Exactly. Like you get, like, you know, yeah, like you can get at the <laughs> Halloween shops, you know. So anyways, this is, the, this is the true story, a true account, according to my family. So finally, my grandfather freaks out and he's like, I'm going to stay up. To, so he tells his, the family that was staying in his trailer with him, my grandma, tells them all to get out, go to the other trailers and stay the night there he's going to stay in the trailer he takes his shotgun and he posts himself up in the, in the living room and he waits the baby cry starts to happen again this time the woman comes out from the kitchen he doesn't even have to like sort of walk toward it he's just there and he sees her and he basically fires around at her and it's oh, from a shotgun boom blows open a hole in the wall <laughs> gone next morning they go and he pulls the fridge out and he looks inside the wall he's like pulling the parts of the wall and he sees that inside the wall, 
there are these like baby clothes that are jammed into the wall and he pulls them out and they've got blood on them. Wow. And um, so he tells the family, the family's like, they're freaked out obviously. And uh, they all decide after they talk to the owner of all that, that, that they show the owner what happened and all that. He doesn't know what's going on either. He doesn't know how the baby clothes got tucked into this wall. So they tear the wall open and there's more and more. And it's just an ugly scene. Wow. And so they decide to burn the whole trailer down. So that's what they do. They basically move all the other trailers. They set fire to the trailer. And that's the end of the story. But wow. That's cool. I was told that. Right, to <laughs> yeah, I was told that. That was the first time and last time I ever told my family, tell me a scary story, mom. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> after that, I'd never ask again. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, you know, wow. That, that is, that is, that is, yeah, that's it's got suspense, you know, and then, you know, it just gets deeper and deeper. It's, it's really cool. One of the stories that used to really capture my imagination as I was a kid, and this is one of those intersections of Chicano and Mexican culture that did exist when I was a kid, because there's certain leyendas that, that, that we, I guess somehow got passed, you know, even though a lot of the cultural celebrations didn't get passed, like we didn't even know what September 16th was when we were growing up as kids, but we did hear about, uh, in this particular version, it was set at the Rainbow Ballroom in Fresno. And I don't know, you, you've, you probably know about the legend of the Rainbow Ballroom, no, but it was in Fresno and it was the big time for Chicanos. When there were dances, they would have bands and there would be dances and then the lowriders would cruise up and down the avenue. And, you know, this was, of course, the 70s and the 80s. So there were a lot of shootings and a lot of, you know, stabbings and stuff. It's just normal. Yeah, yeah. You know, we got stabbed. Oh, really? You know, you know that's what you get and from the Rainbow Ballroom. But uh, but people would get dressed up. Chicanos would get all dressed up and they would go there uh, and they would dance. And it even had one of those crystal balls, you know, that became such a uh, a, a common thing in discos, but back then was really the wow. Did you know they got a crystal ball at the Rainbow Ballroom? <laughs> it but, was uh, a ball. The version of this story I heard took place there. There was this young woman who snuck out. She wasn't supposed to, but she got all dressed up and she snuck out. And then she sees this really incredibly handsome man, and he's all nice and dressed, wearing Gucci and crap. And the disco ball is spinning, and the song comes on. You know, probably you know something from Saturday Night Live. Or do, 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 do. But they start to dance and he's intimate. You know, they, they slow dance and she looks down and she sees, of course, that he doesn't have feet. He has devil's claws. Right. And that is supposed to teach, at least in many traditional tellings of it, young women not to sneak out and, and be with men. Without <laughs> but it was, a, it was a leyenda that really existed and that I heard about that took place at the Rainbow Ballroom in Fresno, California. But then my mother told us of something that connects always to this story. And that is when she was in high school, before she met my dad, she was going out with this really slick looking guy. I mean, he wore yeah. really nice clothes, drove a big brand new Ford or something, one of those big giant cars back in the, you know, the sixties. And, uh, but he got in a car accident, totaled the car and he was killed. And they went to the funeral and then that night at home, my grandmother told my mom to go out and turn off the water. And in Pinedale, there's a lot of land in little tiny houses. She had to walk all the way across the land and there was an alley there. And that's where you turn off the water. And it was very scary because there were uh, winos in the alley. There are all kinds of bad crap that could happen in the alley. But she walked out there and she saw his car and it was right there with the lights on, like it was waiting for her. And she ran into the house screaming, 
And when she came out, it wasn't there anymore when the grandparents came out. But those two stories used to capture my imagination as a kid. Ahora, para homenajear a la Catrina, un poema escrito por el mexicano Eduardo Langagne en voz de Maru Enríquez. La Catrina. Hay calavera Catrina en tu sombrero adornado. Se nota que estoy marcado y hasta el cuero se me enchina. Es decir, ya pido esquina de tu acechanza constante, de tu decisión tajante, de tu poder infernal. Si quieres hacerme mal, no me permitas que cante. Si quieres hacerme mal, no me permitas que cante. que cante porque te alejo maldita y en cada palabra escrita más fortalezco mi aguante no me importa que elegante te vistas para traerme puede ser que el no tenerme te produzca siempre enfado en tu espejo desdichado lo juro no vas a verme en tu espejo desdichado lo juro no vas a verme lo juro no vas a verme hoy por lo menos lo juro no entraré hoy en ese oscuro cajón con mi cuerpo inerme después ya vas a vencerme cuando yo quiera calaca me clavarás esa estaca que se le clava al vampiro you know, I'm kind of geeking out right now in, in research that I'm doing on comparing some certain uh, branches of science with mysticism and, and the occult. And I'm finding all these different connections between them. And one of the things that I know now on a visceral level is that Halloween, which has been often very criticized and even forbidden by some Christian, white Christian evangelical churches uh, as satanic, you know, as demonic. And I remember there were a lot of churches that used to do alternative Halloween activities and you would dress like a saint or something. You wouldn't come in there as Satan or as a witch or anything like that, because that's, you know, that's uh, and communication of the dead with the dead with certain evangelical Christian sects is, you know, one of the, the, the worst sins that you could do. Right. Uh, the necromancer must be put to death, you know, that kind of mentality and, and that kind of mentality that has caused in esoteric history, the, uh, you know, the, the burning times, you know, when they burn witches and, uh, and, and where witches had to hide themselves and they had to hide their symbols. And this is even a phenomenon that existed in indigenous culture with Mexicans having to hide when not seen, uh, you know, under the Virgin Mary, having to hide their saints or, or their gods and demons and all that under these, you know, these saints. 
uh, that Halloween in the U.S. has been an opportunity for witches to come out of the broom closet for a day or two and that they could actually practice esoteric rituals and display esoteric imagery without fear of being you know, accused. And I noticed that it's still that way that it is an opportunity, but although now many witches have come out of the broom closet and they're, they're completely open, they're not as scared as they were before, as they should not be, they shouldn't have to be, because uh, it's, you know, it's a religion that's, you know, as old as, you know, any other religion. But I notice that, that there are still those opportunities to practice esotericism or witchcraft during this time, and if you look at those big Halloween stores, I bet you've never even been in one, Tim, but there's these huge Halloween stores all over the city called Spirit. Is that right? I've never been in them, yeah. Oh, they are, they are, they are just out of this world, Halloween imagery everywhere. They have these big, giant axe-wielding murderers for $500 that you can put in your front yard, and they're mechanical, and they say shit to you. Uh, and... Uh, but there's always sections in those stores where they have true occult uh, symbolism, you know, and, and, and I'm thinking, well, that's, you know, that's, that's fantastic because it does give those who practice, you know, uh, you know, certain kind of, of witchcraft that includes these, you know, esoteric uh, symbiology. It does allow them to come out of the closet and even more, yeah, I guess, uh, uh, you know, to practice even more what they, you know, what they hold to be sacred. Totally. Absolutely. You know, and and, you know, what I what I kind of I, I guess I kind of do practice some of that as well, because when I go when I don't go into that spirit Halloween shop that you're talking about, I've never seen. <clears throat> sometimes I'll buy uh, some decorations that I would just love to buy on any normal day, actually, like Absolutely, I, will, yes. I will buy the blackbirds like I will. I love the blackbirds. And then I bring them to my house and then I put them up like on the bookshelf and one over here on this side of the house. And then I'll put up the magnetic cockroaches on my fridge <laughs> and then I just leave them there year round. And, and like when family comes, they're. <laughs> They're always like, what the hell is going on? But I leave it on because my kids love it. I love it. So that's that's the only reason why I like going into those spirit stores with my wife while she goes and buys a whole bunch of stuff. And and this is no criticism of her, by the way, because she makes Halloween magic for the whole family. But that's why the only reason why I like going in there, because I immediately go and look for those things that are authentically uh, uh, maybe that's a bad word. Authentic is so biased and so judgmental, but that, that, that somehow contain imagery that connects to, you know, uh, the human subconscious in powerful symbolic ways, i.e. there's something really to it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm attracted to those when I go to these shops and I find things that I will keep year round, not just for Halloween. You know, there are things that I, I actually enjoy, you know, things that make me feel like they're part of the natural world. And yet we've yeah. imbued them with some dark meaning, you know what I mean? Like, like right. birds, for example. <laughs> yeah. And like, and like the spider and the pentagram, the spider is one of the only you know, other than saber-toothed tigers and wild beasts, uh, creatures that is encoded into our evolutionary DNA to fear. 
You don't have to teach a child to fear a spider. A child will fear a spider. And it makes evolutionary sense because if a spider is dangerous and it, you know, bites us, it's going to kill us. But you see a lot of spiders during Halloween, right? But also you see a lot of pentagrams during Halloween. And pentagram has been, you know, it's been around for a long time, of course, and it represents the elements and it has, you know, non-satanic uh, uh, you know, origins as well as, you know, what has become satanic uh, origins. But those two things, which are very similar in terms of their archetypal reaching out, you know, you know, you were talking about that circle earlier. And I says, well, there you go. You know, the yeah. circle itself is the beginning of those branches, you know, of, of reaching out that, uh, uh, you know, that there is imagery that comes up, even if you're not looking for it, that, that, that communicate to humans on, you know, genetic, even genetic levels, you know, on the level of DNA, on the level of evolution that might cause us to experience that part of our brain that wants us to fight or flee or to freeze. That's yeah. another thing we do. Yeah. Freeze, you know? And so it's, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it's, it's, it's a way for us to experience the fear that is encoded in within us without having to create reasons every day to fear. Maybe that's how Halloween and these kind of things can empower us as human beings. Or it can just be all about the candy. Absolutely. <laughs> the candy! <laughs> Do you remember that trend a couple of years ago, which I, I would not watch a single one because I thought it was disgusting. I watched part of one where parents would tell their kids, all oh, your Halloween candy has been gone or been stolen. These little three-year-olds are crying. No, no, no. And then they say, just kidding. Oh my God, those were so cruel. <laughs> it's about the candy, man. I loved getting the candy. Yeah, it's about the candy, man, for sure. Me too. Yeah. And in fact, you know, it's, it's almost more, at least for my kids, it's almost more just about getting the candy than actually eating the candy. Absolutely. You know, I mean, well, they'll eat, my kids will eat candy the first, first night. And then, you know, then by the, after that, the candy just stays in a big tub somewhere, you know what I mean? Like it goes bad, but, um, but yeah, it's about, and you know, I'm, I mean, even that is kind of this, maybe if it's about going out to get the candy, I think a part of it is just that freedom you one feels to just go and knock on some random door and say, who are you? Like, you know, see face to face, like, you know, there's that too. You don't get to do normally knock on someone's door and say, Hey, how's it going? (laughs) You know, you know, one of the interesting things that I just encountered is that, you know, the the, uh, dopamine, everyone knows what dopamine is, right? Dopamine is a neurotransmitter and it makes us feel, you know, uh, great pleasure. Right. But, what neuroscientists are telling us now that dopamine is not in the act of achieving that pleasure, but it's in the act of looking for the pleasure that looking, like, even if it's something as fundamental as mating, that search for a mate is the dopamine, the actual getting the mate and consummating the desire. It's all down, right? The dopamine all about the journey, not the destination. <laughs> and when, yeah, exactly. And when you come home with that bag of candy, and you pour, or even just going up to a door of a rich house and the rich people grab a big old handful of little mini candy bars, which were always the best, better than those little other, you know, crappy stuff that we used to give out, those lollipops with nothing inside exactly. of them. Walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, walnuts. I remember that. I never gave walnuts. I never gave rich walnuts. people get this handful and they drop it into your bag. Man, that felt so good. But yeah, it ends up going to waste. Well, yeah. not we're kids, but mostly now with, with our kids, 
Yeah. We have Halloween candy year round until we have to throw it out or take it to, to work and put it in a big glass bowl and hope that students eat it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's what we do. That's right. Yeah. The ghosts of the DeSoto Hotel. The building has long had a reported history of being haunted and has been the site of many paranormal investigations. El Paso locals and speak in harsh tones of the hotel's haunted history and many say you get a strange feeling by just looking at it. Others say that if you walk through its hallways with a partner, it's not uncommon to feel the strange sensation of someone passing between you, even if you are the only ones around. Though it is impossible to say for sure how many spirits inspectors roam the halls of this hotel, there are three distinct entities that have been documented by more than one source. The Shadow in the Doorway One of the more notable entities experienced at the DeSoto Hotel is all the more compelling for having actually shown up on video. Investigators looking into the DeSoto Hotel set up cameras and auto recording equipment in one of the hotel's abandoned hallways and come away with some intriguing and some would say creepy evidence. In the footage they recorded, a strange voice can be heard saying, who cares? While the EVP collected is unsettling enough on its own, not long after the image of a faded ethereal person walking across a hallway can be seen. Is this evidence of a paranormal entity taking up residence in the Desoto? Perhaps, but at the very least, it is an interesting and unsettling clip. Sara. Another noteworthy spirit that supposedly haunts the hotel's halls is that of a young girl that has come to be known as Sara. A rather playful spirit, Sara can reportedly be found wandering the DeSoto's many halls. She can be heard laughing and giggling, and when prompted in the past has been caught an EVP saying her name. Unlike some of the DeSoto's reported spirit, Sara is said to be more mischievous and malevolent. She likes to play around, and has been said to particularly be drawn to women who pass through the hotel. If you have an encounter with Sara, don't be afraid as she might offer you a truly warm welcome to the DeSoto. The Thing in the Basement If Sara is one of the more welcoming spirits the DeSoto has to offer, the darkness that resides within the basement would have to be the exact opposite. There are stories and theories about to explain the true nature of the dark entity that hides within the dark confines of the basements. Some say that it is a restless spirit that doesn't know how to control its anger, while others speculate that it may be something truly demonic. Whatever its origins and intents are, there is no denying the violence this thing is capable of. Local tales speak of a history of satanic worship occurring in the basements of the Desoto, and while the satanic panic has historically been shown to be overblown, it may have some merit in this particular case. People passing through the basement of the Desoto have reported tales of feeling watched, and entirely unwelcome when inside. That would be bad enough on its own if it weren't for its tendency to attack people who've gone into its domain. People who've wandered in the basement of the hotel have reported feelings of being pinched, hit, scratched, and even bitten by the unseen entity. Once they step out of the basement, these scratches have often proven to be all too real and all too bloody. Recordings in the basement have taken a similarly dark turn, as unlike the far friendlier Sada from the upper floors, the audio of the thing in the basement has come off more like a demonic and truly unwelcoming growling 
There are some who are skeptical as to whether or not it's truly a demon that resides in the De Soto's basement. But when you consider that some residents choose to avoid this part of the hotel, it's better to be safe than sorry. The Legacy of the De Soto Hotel Whatever the nature of the supernatural inhabitants of the De Soto Hotel is, it is undoubtedly a must-see location for any supernatural enthusiast when traveling through El Paso. Go in with an open mind and the recording equipment of your choice and see what the hotel has to offer. Just be careful if you decide to check out the basement and don't say they didn't warn you. Hey, so, so one more thing I wanted to ask you. Are there any works of literature that you associate with Halloween or that evoke Halloween for you that you love? God, I knew you were going to ask me that, man. <laughs> I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head. You know, one of the... <clears throat> One of the first, in fact, I almost thought of telling this story. Um, I like the book called The Corpse Walkers by Liao Yiwu, mm. uh, Chinese poet, really. Um, but he was, um, he was actually, uh, during the Tiananmen Square massacre, he read a poem out loud that got him put into prison. He became a political prisoner. Wow. And while in prison, they wouldn't give him, you know, a pencil or, or paper. <clears throat> so he would, he would take people's testimonies, other prisoners, And he wanted to commit their stories to memory. So he would have them tell the same prisoner, tell them the same story every day, like about their lives. And when he came out, finally got out, he wrote a book called The Corpse Walkers. And it's a series of these sort of memorized testimonies of the prisoners that were in there. And one of the stories that he was told was a story. um, It's called The Corpse Walkers. And it's a story about, I guess it's an ancient practice in, in China and parts of China where, you know, when somebody would die, they would have to carry the body to... Uh, I don't know if it was the morgue. I don't remember this part. It was the morgue or where they carried it to, but they had to carry it to some distance. Or maybe like if the family member died far from home, they had to carry him back home. I think that might've been what it was. And to do that though, they would actually like hoist, it would be two men, they'd hoist up the body and make it look as if it were prepared to sort of like walk. Uh And then, and then they would like drape cloaks over them. And then these two men underneath the real body would carry it so that it looked like the person was returning home. Wow. They were called corpse walkers. Uh, it's a crazy story. I don't know if that's Halloween fitting at all, but just oh, the idea of ghosts and, and sort of walking the, the walking dead, um, you know, and that that as an ancient practice uh, that that existed blew my mind when I read about it, you know, but yeah, that's kind of one book that just quickly came wow. to mind. Well, I am going to look that book up. That sounds, that sounds amazing. I would love to see it. You yeah. know, what are you? Well, I was thinking, you know, that when I ask you this question, that the, you're probably going to throw it back at me and what yeah. I think of. And I couldn't think of anything because mostly what I read, if it has a fear factor, it has to do more with psychological fear or, you know, or, uh, you know, cruelty or, you know, these things you find in novels that really, you know, scare the heck out of you. Right. And I kept going back to Edgar Allan Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, you know, right. and because Edgar Allan Poe has been so much part of Halloween consciousness in the United States for so many generations that, you know, I couldn't help but think of him. And then, of course, I think of the Raven and I think of his most what I think is his most horrific story. If you really can enter into it and be there is the pit and the pendulum. Uh, But the one that really evokes Halloween for me is a poem, the poem, The Bells. And I don't know if you remember this poem, but it's a really Nice poem about the bells, Christmas. Oh, no. 
bell, somebody's being born, you know, that, so, you know, the bells ring and a child is brought in the world, then church bells and then Christmas bells and then fire bells and then funeral bells. And the, the poem just gets darker and darker. But what I love about it, what I love about the poem is the rhythm and the incantation. Uh, he keeps saying, uh, I should probably pull it up here because uh, I'll, I'll probably get it wrong. Edgar yeah. Allan Poe, but he uh, he has this incantation that mm. that that comes back where he says, um, you know, from the tintinibulation that so musically wells, from the bells, 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 from the jingling and the tinkling of the bells, and he keeps doing that, and later on it just becomes more intense. The bells, 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 bells. And after a while, you realize that you're chanting the name of Beelzebub. And it just, <laughs> you know, and, and it gets darker and darker as you go in until you realize that the chant that you're giving is a, you know, is kind of, you know, a, uh, uh, yeah, it's That's kind scary. of great. That's yeah. scary. And, and, you know, and there's nothing that scared a, a Christian boy, Catholic Christian boy more than the devil. The stories that we've heard of the devil were, you know, were, 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 and so it's like the devil is, you know, for me, always, uh, you know, something that I relate to, to, to fear and to right, Halloween. Right. And when I was a kid, Halloween was exciting because there really was that fear factor that was involved. And I remember going up to a house when we were maybe six or seven years old and these ladies were like witches and they were pulling candy out of a cauldron and that was spooking you. I got so scared. I ran away and started crying. And my brother was laughing. I mean, get back here. And, you know, but those ladies are, and that's, I guess, part of the attraction. And so, but I don't take Satan seriously. So if Satan is coming for me, he better bring some damn tacos. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, there it is. That's, that's the Halloween uh, slash Dia de los Muertos, uh, you know, um, breakdown. Yeah. And uh, we'd like to thank our producers for this show, Claudia Flores Ramirez and Ileana Pichardo Rutia, as well as all the, uh, the MFA candidates who have participated in this, this show, which would be Cecile Collins, Natasha Rangel, and, um, oh, and on Spotify and I, uh, 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 all our podcasts, they're going to make a playlist of music that goes That's with right. and Day of the Dead. So take a look at that. Uh, I'm Daniel Chacon. Thank you for joining us on Words on a Wire. Yeah, and I'm Tim Hernandez. I guess that wraps it up for the Halloween slash Dia de los Muertos uh, slasher edition of Words on a Wire. <laughs> Thank you for listening. El Mambo Zombie presente en el disco Camino de Fuego de la agrupación española Escorzo, cierra este programa y la breve muestra de música en torno al Día de Muertos. Mi nombre es Cecil Collins. Gracias por la invitación. Hemos preparado una playlist en Spotify con más canciones de la Santa Cecilia, Son de Madera, entre otros, para que acompañen a su altar. La liga está disponible en las redes de Words on a Wire. Mambo Zombie Mambo Mambo Zombie Escorzo Mambo Zombie Mambo Mambo Zombie Mambo Mambo Zombie Mambo Mambo Zombie Mambo Mambo Zombie
estilo de brujos malvados Muertos vivientes, carentes de mente, comiendo cerebros con uñas y dientes Ciegos de ira, sin rumbo, sin vida, van por el mundo sin perfecto 